We come this morning to the passage that includes the words, renewing your mind. Now, for some of us, that may remind us of a radio broadcast, or how you end up getting renewing your mind, but that's a, a, a phrase that R.C. Sproul captured back in 1971 when he started this radio program, and I guess I was listening to him talk about uh, a radio program they had prior to that. I don't remember the name of it, but some small radio program. They pulled Renewing Your Mind together, and it's been a ministry of Ligonier Ministries ever since 1971, so over a half century of ministry, which is exciting and happy. One thing that R.C. Sproul has said, I've heard him say it in my own ears, is that the way to the heart for a man, for a woman, for a child, is through the mind. Hence, the renewing your mind is a central aspect to the ministry of R.C. Sproul because he wants, through your mind, by the Spirit's power and grace, to impact the hearts of people. But that we impact the hearts of people through the minds of people. And that's, that's something we should have in our minds as we deal with maybe our children, as we deal with one another as a body and congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as a session, as we think about the leadership and, and uh, of the church as well, that we want to engage your hearts. We want you to, from the heart, love the Lord, but we have to do that through the mind and know that in both counts, our, our understanding, our intellect, and our hearts and our emotions and our, the seed of who we are is all connected up. We're not, we're not cut up into different pieces, but that the Holy Spirit must needs work in all of that. So my thought then is as I approach the the ministry of the pulpit and come here to herald the word of God to you is I want your minds. I want you to understand what the word of God says. And from there, I want your hearts. I want you to be captivated by God and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus and what he calls you unto in Christ Jesus to be to throw your heart into that. There's a certain urgency. You can even see in our very text right at the beginning, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, that there's an urgency in the gospel ministry, and I think if any of you, and most of you have had some familiar, familiarity with R.C. Sproul's ministry, there's some urgency in his preaching. If you've ever listened to R.C. preach, there's an urgency in him that you would know Christ, that you would know what the scripture says, and that you would obey from the heart the things the Lord has given to you to do. And I think that's the very urgency of this text. This one, and it's, uh, again, a text that we often might associate with that particular ministry, but uh, really with the Christian life. With the Christian life. And so let's look into it with these three little sections, like any good sermon, has three points. Apostolic urgency to begin with, that we can talk about. Secondly, living sacrifices. And finally, discerning God's will. So first, the apostolic urgency. I appeal to you. I urge you, he says, brothers. This is the apostle. Saying, well, therefore, therefore ties back to what's gone before. Based upon what's gone before, he urgently calls his readers, his hearers, uh, and downline us, as, as, as Christians downstream from him, by the mercies of God to present our bodies as living sacrifices to our God, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service or spiritual worship. There are other apostolic urgent kind of pleas that go out and you can think and just maybe flip around or I'll flip for you. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll find ourselves in Ephesians 4 a number of times here today. So let me read the appeal there as well. Verse 1. I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He goes on from there to describe it, just like he does here in Romans chapter 12. There's an urgency. It's not just that Paul, I've laid out the doctrine, I've taught you about sin and redemption and the plan of God through history and all this great stuff that we can look back at the book of Romans and see, yeah, he's taught us about those things. It's all in front of you and the Spirit's work is to apply it so there's no urgency on my part to try to compel you to receive this thing and grow in it. But there is. Right? There's this urgency on the Apostles' part that he wants them to hold fast to what they've been given and to grow in the Christian life. And the same thing goes exactly in our text. We see the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read, just read the same thing to you here, or something very similar. In verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. Now, that, of course, will help you as we come to the Lord's Supper and the, uh, the divisions in the body uh, that were occurring in Corinth are addressed right from the beginning of the, of the epistle. Right? That there are divisions there and there are problems there with Christians dividing over against each other. And he says, I urge you. I, I want to compel you not to be like that, not to have those divisions, but be united in the body of Christ, in Christ himself. So there's an apostolic urgency, which I think is important because, obviously, Paul wants you to know some doctrine, right? He wants you to know doctrine because he spent the last 11 chapters giving you doctrine, okay? Lots of it. Lots of doctrine, lots of teaching, lots of ways to understand what, who God is, what he's doing, what Christ has done, what the church is, how the Gentiles and Jews fit into it. There's lots of teaching, right? So he's obviously eager to teach, the Apostle wants you to learn something. He wants you to know something. But he's also urgent for you to live in light of that truth as well. It's not just the knowing. It's not just, coming again, coming at the head. But it's through the head that the Apostle moves to the heart and urges, therefore, the Christians in Rome to be faithful, to present themselves, their lives, their bodies to God as living sacrifices. Why does Paul have to do this? And again, he does it in a number of different places, urging, urging Christians to be faithful to their calling, to live according to the commandments of God and how he's told us to live. Why would he have to do that over and over again? If it weren't for a tendency, we have not to do that. Right? There's a tendency in each of our hearts as Christians, like this, these, these epistles aren't written to the world. You know, they're written to the body of Christ. And they're full of these urgent pleas to, to fall in line as Christians, to be faithful, to do what God has called you to do, whether it's the unity of the body and not dividing up, or simply living the Christian life in its fullness in all these different ways. And as our brother read that chapter, I hope you're impressed with how many little commands there are, just one after another after another, kind of spread around and look around the Christian life. Well, that's those commands. Let us know what God calls us to do. And Paul urges us. Paul urges us, and therefore I urge you to serve the Lord, to present your bodies to Him as living sacrifices, to obey Him all the way down to your toes and all the way up to your hair if you have it. Top to bottom, side to side, all of us, each of us in totality, belong to the Lord Jesus and we're called to service to Him. And Paul urges us to present ourselves to God, because we have a tendency not to. 
we have a tendency maybe to present ourselves to something else, to uh, uh, maybe our own flesh or something else to serve that. Paul says, you're, you're not indebted to the flesh. You're indebted to Jesus Christ, and you belong to him. And you shall be living sacrifices. So let's look at those living sacrifices. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, this is indeed similar, an issue of mercy, as God's work in us, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, most, most commentators I read say, well, bodies just stands for people. Uh, just, just as if I might say, well, you know, how many noses were there? You say, well, there were you know, 250 noses attached to the rest of the people, too, right? He's using nose to stand in the place of person, or here, body to stand in the place of the wholeness of the person. Okay, sure. Right? It's, not just, it's not just that God wants our physical bodies. He wants everything included. But there is this specification of bodies, which I think is important for us to see. Turn back just a few chapters of Romans 6. We see a similar emphasis here as Paul unpacks the doctrine of, of redemption. Uh, he, we see a similar emphasis on the physical body and the members of the body. Start reading at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as anyone, to anyone as obedient slaves... You are slaves to the one you, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, and having become slaves to righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Okay, so Paul's saying, hey, there's this redemptive reality that's coming to your life, Christian. You were once a slave to sin. You served sin like a slave. You did what you were told. You were, you were in conformity. But now God's changed that slavery. He's taking you from being a slave of sin... To making you a slave of Christ. Okay, that's, the, that's, that's the transition we see in this particular. And the one whom you serve, your master, the one who owns you, the one who runs you, the one who tells you what to do, that's the one you present yourself to serve. And in particular, what? Your members. Your bodies. You realize that, right? We serve the one we serve with our bodies. Our body is not just the thing we kind of take our minds around, though it does that. Uh, we travel around and minds travel with but we obey God or disobey God with our bodies. And we may think, okay, well, that's, you know, maybe in the first place sexual. Well, maybe it is, and maybe it is in our time, our super, super sexualized time. You bet. Um, I've heard it said by plenty of, you know, anyone in your congregation who's under 40, don't assume they have the same sexual ethics that you have in mind as someone over 40. I don't know why 40 in particular, but maybe something from the 60s or 70s kind of blew it off the tracks. You guys can tell me. But I think that's worth noting and, and saying very clearly. God requires your sexuality to be faithful to Him, according to the Word. Not according to the world's wind of doctrines and things that blow around. Of course, people love sex. It's fun, it's interesting, it makes problems, everything else too that comes from it. But God says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've made it for you as a gift for your marriage. 
That's where it is. That's where your sexuality exists and thrives and grows. So, whether we're of age and long married, or single, or little ones looking forward, maybe getting married, God calls us to sexual faithfulness in all of those categories, all of the time. But that's just sexuality. That's one part. What about the other things we do with our bodies? We do all sorts of things with our bodies. We take places and do stuff with them. That's how we engage with the world. It's with our bodies. And God says, no, I want your bodies, your very persons, to be living sacrifices. Now, when you hear the word sacrifice, your mind should go, I think, to the altar. It should go to Jerusalem. It should go uh, to the, the, the sacrifices offered unto God, right, as, as worship, particularly under the Old Covenant. What's the difference between those sacrifices and the sacrifice that we're called to make here with our bodies? Well, one difference is those are animals, um, and, and God has a type and a working going on with the blood of animals as far as the covering of sin, for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins, and that's something that's certainly taught through the, the sacrifice of animals. But when those animals came and their blood was shed, they became dead. Yeah, that's part of the shedding of the blood, is the making of them dead, right? the killing of them. They must die for our sins to be covered. Well, Christian, we know what that points to. The Lord Jesus Christ, who came and gave his body on the tree. Of course he gave his mind. You read him praying, saying, Father, I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? And of course the answer is no. Jesus, there is no other way but your physical sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, by which we are redeemed. The whole person of Christ on the cross being put to death on our behalf. Or even better, we can state it, by baptism and by faith, we're back in Jesus, and his death is our death. And his resurrection is our resurrection. But it's very much bodily. It's a bodily reality, a physical reality. And so... We sometimes separate spiritual things, say, here's spiritual stuff over here, and there's physical stuff over here, and they're just kind of different. But that's not how it works. God made us united beings, both physical and spiritual, all together. And here these dead sacrifices signify one thing. They point to Christ for sure. But in Christ, then, we're called to be living sacrifices. We're not to put ourselves to death. We're not to be put to death. Christ has been put to death for us. We've died in him. And we're now living in Christ Jesus in newness of life. And we're therefore living sacrifices. As the smoke from those ancient sacrifices went up, talks about God smelling the aroma and being pleased, uh, which again, if we're thinking back to our education hours, one of those things those early 20th century saints just had to see through. God couldn't be like that. Uh, but of course, God is like that. And more than the animal sacrifices, uh, it's the death of his very own son. The pouring out of the blood of his beloved son that is the, is the salvation of the world. But he calls us then as little Christs to be little sacrifices. In light of the great sacrifice, and in light of the great resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we have, are sacrificed and we are resurrected as well. We're living sacrifices. As that smoke went up and pleased the Lord, so now the worship of the saints... We are actually, remember, a temple in which is made a spiritual sacrifice and so on. Here the sacrifices are our lives, the, the, the daily lives that we're living. So there's the corporate worship that's a sacrifice to the Lord. Um, but there's also just our daily lives. That, that's our, our reasonable service, which is where Paul takes it, to the Lord. 
What could be more reasonable, Christian, than you giving yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to death for you? The one who has redeemed you body and soul, life and in death, is it unreasonable that you should commit yourself to him? That you should say, all of mine is yours? Everything I am is yours, Jesus? Do with me what you will. Make me obedient. Let me obey you and be a living sacrifice. That's a reasonable response. In fact, I think anything less than that is unreasonable. And the truth of it is, we're less than that most of the time. If you're honest, you say, yeah, no, I'm not fired up all the time to be a living sacrifice to Jesus who gave himself up to death for me. I'm too busy with the kids. I'm too busy with work. I'm too busy with recreation or guitar playing or whatever we're doing. But, of course, all those things are our sacrifice to God. We have to understand and focus our minds. It's not we come together for spiritual time and everything else isn't. It's, you know, of the world or something else. That's not it. All the way down to your bodies, you are a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is a reasonable service, a reasonable worship in light of the greatness of the gospel. That's our reasonable worship, or spiritual worship, it says, at least in this translation. I'll move on from that. Do not be conformed, then. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world. So what is conformation? There's a, there's a confirmation in the Christian tradition, uh, which just popped in my head as I said the words. That's not necessarily what I'm thinking of, though that's, that's, the word means the same thing there. Being conformed is being changed into the form of something. Right? Taking on a different form, taking on a different shape, maybe the way of thinking about it. So what shape are you taking on? What are you, what are you after? Now, we can talk about that physically. I'm taking on a larger shape day by day, it would appear. Uh, you know, the, our physical shape. But that's, that's, that's a little bit our bodies, but our whole lives. What are our lives being conformed to? What's our pattern that we're after? Who's the mentor? Who's the, who's the one that you're, that you're firing at and, and angling to be like and, and to, you know, calls the shots and you try to like conform to that image? We all need those people and we have them. In fact, I was just speaking to a good friend yesterday about the foolishness oftentimes of, of penal situations where we take, uh, we take minor criminals and put them in the joint with uh, more uh, masterful criminals and they aren't reformed a bit. They're made, they're conformed, they're conformed to be greater criminals. That's often what happens. There's a, there's a conforming to these images that we're after, the patterns we're after, the people that we like. So it says, don't be conformed then to what? This age. This world. The word is ion, not cosmos. The, which, which just means like kind of an indefinite period of time. Right? Uh, an age. Uh, and in, in, the, in the word in Latin is seculum, which we get secular from. And secular thinking, secularism, is this age. Not the one to come. If there is one to come, like we said this morning, it doesn't matter. If there's an age to come, if, there's, if, if Christ is going to usher us, as we believe the scriptures teach, into the new heavens and new earth, the, 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 the age to come, that doesn't matter for here. Secularism has to do with right here and now this space and time, not some other one. So think about that as you're thinking about the word secularist. And here is the Latin translation of this particular verse. Do not be conformed to this seculum, to this period of time, to the way the world operates, the, the images and the, the forms of the world, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds and bodies are not to be conformed to the patterns of this world. Now, our minds, that could be the patterns of thought. 
Right? The, way that, the way the world perceives and understands things, it's, it's very easy for us uh, to just imbibe that, just take it in because everyone's drinking from that Kool-Aid, right? And um, we're part of everyone, so that kind of works that way. We've got to be careful of that. Christians, we have to be careful of what we take into our minds and how we think about things so that we shouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and by deceitful men as well. However, to be transformed, uh, there's something different. Not just conformity, not just falling in line and following the patterns of thought or physical activity or whatever else, but rather be transformed. Be transformed. So there's real power. Not because a pastor, not because of the elders of the session or the deacon or whatever else. The power isn't in us. The power isn't in this book as such. Where's the power of transformation? It's in God himself. It's in the Holy Spirit who makes use of this church, who makes use of this preacher, who makes use of this book, his book, to transform us. There's power from outside. The Holy Spirit gives us the power, gives us the transformation. And that can be in an absolute sense, from taking us from darkness to light. We're all born dead in Adam. We're all born dead in sin. We need that newness of life, and we can't give it to ourselves. And we can't give it to one another. It must come from God. Though we trust by way of covenant, and looking back the entire scripture, that God's always worked in families and, and through parents teaching and discipling our children. That continues, and so we do that. Uh, seeking the Lord's transformation, the Lord's power, the Holy Spirit at work in us and our children. It's not just the power of conversion in the sense of being taken from darkness to light. It's the power of conversion every day, Christian. Every day. Every day we're called to serve the Lord. To put to death the things of the flesh. To be renewed in the spirits of our minds. And to put on the new man, if we want to go to Ephesians, for the same idea of being transformed. Right? To put off the old man, like a garment. Take it off. That's how the world thinks. That's how the world operates. We're not that way. We're being renewed in the spirits of our minds by the Holy Spirit through His Word. Preach week by week. Read and study day by day. The Holy Spirit makes use of that Word to transform us. To give us something we don't have. To introduce into us powers and skills and gifts that we don't have by nature. They're not ours. And we might step back and say, well, nothing's ours by nature. Everything's given. True enough. Everything's given. But here's a redemptive giving that's different from the natural giving. It's all given by God. But here's redemptive strain, right, where God gives us and transforms us in ways that we don't have the power to do. So, Christian, are there parts of your life that need transformation? Are there areas in your life where it's like, yeah, we're not, we're not serving the Lord super well here? Um, here's the point we're struggling. And maybe it's one of those points of struggling that's gone on for the last number of decades. Sometimes it goes that way. Sometimes there are fresh ones. All of it, we know, we take before the Lord. We come week by week and confess our sins and trust that the Lord Jesus Christ has covered our sins and that we're His people for real. Like we're really His people. We're really forgiven. And then if we're really forgiven people, then that would change our hearts. We pray to the Lord, change our hearts. Continue to work in us. It's not just being converted from darkness to light. Certainly that. You can't take the thousandth step without taking the first step. But the first step is just the first step of all of your Christian life, being transformed by the Spirit of God to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the renewing of our minds, and I guess that's the work of the Holy Spirit, especially by the Word, to renew us, to make us new again, to make us new again. 
right? I remember talking to one of us out here that said, you know, I feel like I've been a Christian for years, but this is a number of months ago, but I feel like I came to Christ in that sermon. Good. Every time. Every time. We must be renewed in the spirits of our minds. Over and over again, God's got to give us and preserve us and keep us and build us, and we need that that spiritual reality, that that fire and that uh, zeal that only God gives. We don't work it up. And so, as we come together and we think, okay, well, God, I need to present my body as a living sacrifice. Where am I not? Where do I need to confess my sins and seek your grace? And would you please work in my life? Would you please work in the lives of those in the church and our families and so on and keep each other in prayer because the source of all of this is God. God's the one who gives it. Nobody else does. We minister in different ways and God gives it through that ministry, but it's not the ministry that has the power. It's the Holy Spirit that's the power behind the ministry. And that's the ministry of renewing our minds so that by testing we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Another RC comment. He had mentioned in his radio program that when they had this, this earlier program before renewing your mind, that they had callers that would call in with questions and they'd try to answer the questions on the air. And uh, he says the, the number one category of question that we receive is, what's the will of God for my life? What does God want me to do? Where, where does God want me to go? What direction am I supposed to be going here, God, and trying to discern the will of God? Well, I tell you that's consistently a struggle for most people because we don't know the future. We just know the one who does. We don't know what's coming, but we know the one who not only knows what's coming, Christian, but has decreed what shall come to pass from all eternity. So now we're kind of on solid ground, trusting just in God's own providence, but we want to know. We want to be able to make decisions and move forward. The scripture says this about the will of God, and this is what you should know. The will of God for you, Christian, is your sanctification. That's the will of God for you, that you should be transformed, conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's will for you. Faithfulness and holiness in life. Does that mean I should take this job? Does that mean I should pursue marriage with this girl or this guy? Does that mean I should buy this truck or that truck? Right? All those questions of lives that we have. Then there are, there are real questions. and we, we should talk to each other and seek counsel and wisdom. But no, all of it comes from God. And that when God calls us in Christ, He calls us to a life of holiness. That our bodies, our lives would be a sacrifice to Him. And as we sacrifice, we don't know what's going to come, oftentimes. We just need to trust the Lord. Try to be wise. Try to be faithful in our decision-making. But trust the Lord. And it's by the renewal of the mind, by this continual renewal of the mind by the Holy Spirit, that we can discern the will of God. With practice, we can discern and figure out what's, what, maybe what's going on in our lives or in, in the life of the church and, and, and other places. I pray for that, for wisdom as a shepherd of this congregation, that I would have the wisdom from God to know what's going on and what His will is, not just for my life and my family, but for this congregation. And not just for this congregation, but the church in our county and for the Presbytery and so on, right? That we need these gifts. God gives them. But He tells us not to seek that gift so much, not to seek understanding the will of God so much as to seek obedience to God, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can, with practice, discern what the will of God is. So a renewing one's mind, that is to say, coming week by week to the Lord's house, to the Lord's people, hearing the preaching, being ready to receive the preaching of the Word of God, the administration of the sacraments, we come and eat and drink. Anything more bodily than that? Anything more physical than eating and drinking? 
But Jesus meets us here too. He meets us, uh, again, in our minds, as the Word of God is preached in our hearts. But He also meets us in our mouth. Right? He meets us in our bodies. And He says, come feed on Christ. Grow, be renewed in the spirits of your minds, so that you learn to take off the old man, and put on the new man, and seek the will of God, to discern what God is doing. As we close up, turn back to Romans chapter 6 again. I want to read this, this first section of the chapter, which moves down to the second section, which we just read, about presenting your members, you know, the one you serve, that's the one you present your obedience to. But we serve Christ. How do we know we serve Christ? How do we know that He's our Lord and He's the one that we are, are united to and serve? Well, God tells us that. He tells us that sacramentally. He tells us that in water, in the washing of water, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? More sin, more grace, right? By no means. For how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. Sometimes we think our baptism is just this kind of interesting little sign that happens, and sure, it makes us think of Jesus, and it's nice when someone's baptized, because it reminds us that we're baptized too, and all that's true. I don't doubt any of that. But there's something far more connective going on in baptism than just our thinking. Whoever is baptized into Christ is baptized into his death and into the resurrection life. We're baptized into the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. If we have been united with him in a death like his, here's the forward-looking part of baptism, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There's a future dimension of baptism, the resurrection of the dead. I tied into this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Which is to say, you should consider yourselves living sacrifices. You've been buried with Christ into death. You've been raised with Christ in the newness of life. The future of hope and glory is set in front of you in Christ Jesus. In fact, it's surely yours in Christ. Now, consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ, living sacrifices, having your minds renewed week by week and day by day as you come to the Word, begging that God would conform you, transform you into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's not making a decision at some point. It's not tossing the fire, you know, the uh, pine cone into the fire or something like that. Though those things are steps oftentimes. It's a day by day living before God, being renewed in our minds, learning to take off the old man, to put on the new man, and to appeal to the Spirit of God to work in us, not just individually, but even us as a congregation in the church more broadly. He would transform us into the resurrected, resurrected, life-giving image of Jesus Christ. For we are his body, and he is our head. He is our master. We are his slaves. He is our older brother. 
we are his younger brothers. And through him, we've been reconciled to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May we learn to live then, being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Amen.